New Stories, Bold Legends, Stories from Sydney Lunar Festival is a podcast about Australians who celebrate Lunar New Year. This is season two. In season one, we introduced you to a range of successful contemporary Australians, from artists to brain surgeons, fashion designers to board directors. This season, we're going to step back in time and introduce you to some colourful characters from history who have helped shape Australia. From newspaper moguls to department store kings, publicans and tea room merchants, you'll meet people who have made their mark in creating the unique culture we see in our country today. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm the City of Sydney's curator of the Sydney Lunar Festival. I'm also an artist, printmaker and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre. In this series, I explore the stories and history of people who melded their cultural traditions with this sunburnt country we call home. In this episode, we meet Sun Johnson, one of Australia's first media moguls. In August of 1897, tens of thousands of Sydney-siders came together to celebrate Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. The Diamond Jubilee Charity Carnival took place at the Sydney Agricultural Grounds, where Fox Studios now stands. It featured foot and bike races, a Spanish bullfight, and most impressive of all, a magnificent 80-metre-long Chinese dragon. The dragon was surrounded by hundreds of Chinese Australians who had come from all over Sydney and its suburbs to take part in the great event. They were dressed as lords and ladies, emperors and empresses, mythical and historical figures in a grand procession of blinding colour. Chinese New Year celebrations and dragon and lion dances are such a common part of Sydney life now that it's hard to imagine how astonished the European Australians watching this commotion must have been. One newspaper said the blaze of colour was a perfect shock to European eyes. The carnival, which successfully raised about £850 for charity, was considered a massive success, mainly due to the Chinese display. The guest of honour was Lord Hampton and he was greeted by the Lin Yik Tong Society, which had been instrumental in organising the event. His welcome was translated for the Chinese audience by Sun Johnson, editor of the Chinese-Australian Herald, which had also played a big part in encouraging Chinese involvement in the parade. That a national Chinese newspaper existed in the late 1800s is extraordinary. The first edition came out in 1894 and it stayed in continuous print until 1923. At its peak, it had 800 long-term subscribers and a distribution of over 1,000. Throughout its 29-year history, it was edited by Sun Johnson, a Hong Kong-born Chinese-Australian. Just like media personalities today, Sun Johnson was not without his controversy. He was well-educated, bilingual and very intelligent. His life would take him from Hong Kong to London and then on to life in Australia. He was a newsman, entrepreneur, collector and herbalist. But all this would be lost and he would die almost completely forgotten in 1925, just two years after the demise of the newspaper. But let's talk about his beginnings. Sun Johnson was born in Hong Kong in either 1865 or 1868. Reports differ. He was educated in Hong Kong until he was 15, then went on to London for six years of Western schooling before migrating to Australia. One of Sun's earliest achievements was the creation and publication of a kind of phrase book in 1891, The Chinese-English Self-Educator. This is an extraordinary book and I encourage you to look up images of it. One page, for example, is dedicated to words for vegetablemen and fruiterers. Beside beautiful hand-drawn characters, Sun wrote their English counterparts. Grapes, raisins, peach, 
pear, pomegranate, plum. Another page features words suitable for carpenters to use, such as wood, axe, pine, and my personal favourite, auger. He also included handy phrases like, this is the best quality in Sydney, which was useful for, you know, people purchasing clothes, apparently. And then there's, where do you live? With the surprisingly specific answer of 419 Pitt Street. (laughs) I had to look this up. It's now a convenience store. The paper itself, the Chinese Australian Herald, was actually owned by two European men. It had been proposed by Alexander Philip and George Arthur Down in 1892. They created Down, Philip and Co and hired two editors, Sun Johnson and Li Tsai Zhang. The newspaper was initially headquartered on the third floor of 19 Hunter Street. Later it moved to Surrey Hills. The first issue came out in 1894 and it was printed by F. Cunningham & Co at 186 Pitt Street, right where Pitt Street Mall is now. Across the front page was the official endorsement. It said, This newspaper has been approved for circulation under appropriate regulations of the Government of New South Wales and is to be posted free of additional charges to any post office throughout the Territory. The cost of the paper was two pence per issue, or four shillings, four pence for six months, and eight shillings for an annual subscription. Each issue consisted of eight pages of crown folio, essentially sheets of paper folded in half to make two leaves. A sheet of crown was 15 by 20 inches, or about you know, 38 by 50 centimetres, and of course the newspaper was printed in the reverse order to English papers. The first page was always ads, and the second page was Chinese and foreign news, covering everything from birthdays, weddings and obituaries to general news and sailing schedules. The publication was met with reserved amusement from the English-Australian press. The Brisbane Week proclaimed, The Chinese title contains four fantastical hieroglyphs. And then it went on to describe each character in detail. It was referring to the Chinese characters, the script, that make up the masthead of the newspaper. The second character, for example, was described as the top of a telegraph pole with birds perched on the insulator arms. The third is a kind of vicar of Bray hat with a pair of old shoes and a half Wellington boot perched on top. And the fourth would make a fair counterfeit presentiment of a clown in black and white. Mm Mm-hmm. The Sydney Evening News was even more droll. It said, Our Chinese contemporary in Sydney appears to have won the approval of the large advertising firms, many of whom, in the issue just to hand, make announcements which we have no doubt are startling and which we are sure are truthful to a degree. The reading matter is clear and concise, and if we cannot endorse the views in the editorial columns, that is, for reasons quite different from those which usually engender journalistic differences of opinion, it is rather startling to find a letter in Chinese from Sir R. W. Duff, His Excellency was supposed to know many things, but letter writing, even in English, has never been considered his strong suit. Yeah. Okay, so co-editor Tsai Zhang died in 1896, leaving Son Johnson as the paper's sole editor. He also became a proprietor, leading the creation of Down, Philip and Johnson. Although it was the first national Chinese newspaper, the Chinese-Australian Herald was soon followed in 1898 by the Tung Hua News, later known as the Tung Hua Times. Also in Sydney, while in Melbourne, the Chinese Times launched in 1902. So why then and why Sydney? 
With the end of the gold rushes, the Chinese, like many other groups, were moving to the cities. In Sydney, they began to concentrate around the Rocks District, where they worked in export and trade. An 1890 estimate said that around 9% of Sydney's Chinese population could read English, but about 65% could read Chinese. They needed information, and they needed it in their own language. Although far from homogenous, the Chinese were now a noticeable and distinct group who could be catered for and marketed to. From the start, all of the Chinese newspapers were focused on bringing news from their original homeland, which was a turbulent time in China's history, and men and women wanted to know what was happening. The imperial dynasty was ending, and people were passionately keen to understand what was going on and what the future of that country would be. As I said, this wasn't a homogenous population. There were deep political divisions running through it. Monarchists versus Republicans, intellectuals versus working class, and even Christian versus Confucian. Despite this, the Chinese Australian Herald was broadly populist. In its desire to appeal to a broad range of people and keep them informed, it used vernacular Chinese rather than the literary Chinese. The papers that came after the Chinese Australian Herald would tend to be more politically aligned. This was a time of great upheaval in China, with the sun setting on the empire, attempts at reform, rebellions and wars with the West. So, for example, the Tanghua Times, which had been established by merchants, tended to side with the monarchy. And the Chinese Empire Reform Association, an organisation which supported the return of Guangxu Emperor to power. The Chinese Australian Herald may have chosen to stay politically neutral for purely pragmatic reasons. With fewer political alliances, it was less likely to come under the scrutiny of immigration officials. Because, of course, this was during the white Australia policy. Even the editor of a newspaper could be deported at the drop of a hat. In any case, as these Chinese folk settled into life in Sydney, they started to change the shape of the city. Originally based around the rocks, more and more Chinese started to move towards Belmore Markets, close to where the Capitol Theatre is today. They established gardens in Waterloo and Alexandria. It's hard to imagine now, but this was essentially the edge of the city at the time, and it was fertile land for growing produce. As the markets moved, so did the Chinese. They moved to Haymarket, which is now, of course, home to Chinatown. Despite being out on the fringe, this emerging merchant class was starting to become more westernised. They were learning English and began to put aside the traditional clan rivalries that they had brought with them from China. That's why it made sense for the Chinese-Australian Herald to angle the newspaper towards a more broad audience. In the late 1890s and early 1900s, Sun Johnson and the proprietor James Alexander Phillip worked to create a unique voice for the Chinese-Australian Herald. They imported the first Chinese typesetting machine into Australia, so they no longer had to rely on handwritten stencils and expensive lithography. In 1897, the Chinese-Australian Herald teamed up with newspaper distributors Gordon and Gotch to expand their circulation. This meant that the Chinese-Australian Herald wasn't read only in Sydney, but reached the other Australian colonies and even the Pacific Islands. Together, Johnson and Philip established the paper's editorial direction. Of course, it's hard to know what exactly were the explicit intentions of the two men regarding the role of the newspaper, but whether by accident or by design, what the Chinese-Australian Herald did best was to create a sense of community among the disparate Chinese spread across Australia. 
they weren't just relating news from home, but helping Chinese find a home in Australia. This was a common role for bilingual and educated Chinese. They were often the negotiators between the two cultures. As editor of a national newspaper, Sun was able to go one step further by actually teaching his readers about their new country. For example, drawing on his earlier experience with the self-educator, Sun published in the Chinese Australian Herald, the Chinese Storekeeper's Order List. The newspaper said, Chinese storekeepers may save themselves a large amount of trouble by using this list in making up their orders for goods. <laughs> this was followed by handy translations for essentials such as Arnott's biscuits, you know, some things never change, pure wines and spirits, Van Houten's cocoa, solicitors, and Anderson's seeds. Another way they helped the Chinese to integrate was by actively running education campaigns. For example, the Chinese Australian Herald worked to educate Chinese migrants about clock time. This was a new concept for many Chinese from agricultural provinces, where work was done from dusk till dawn. With the introduction of an eight-hour workweek, it was important for Chinese people to adhere to clock time, or they would be perceived as a threat to European labour. In her extensive research into Sun Johnson and the newspapers of this period, researcher Mei Fen Kuo says that the Chinese Australian Herald not only advocated that the Chinese follow the eight-hour day, but also that they treat Sunday as a day of rest. So this would help them to understand and respect colonial customs. And to this end, each year, the Chinese Australian Herald gave its subscribers a free calendar, which translated between the Chinese and Gregorian calendars. All of this culminated in the Chinese participation in the Diamond Jubilee celebrations. The event was so successful that the Chinese Australian Herald and Lin Yik Tong decided to arrange another to coincide with the Moon Festival. They marched through the city from Bent Street to the railway station, then on to Moore Park for a fireworks display. In the lead-up to the event, the Chinese Australian Herald published articles to get the community excited. And I quote, in addition to the usual dragon dance, there will be other performances using colourful costumes supplied by the people of Mala and other ports. New lions, unicorns and butterflies have been built with the aid of generous donations by Sydney Chinese, as have a number of scenic attractions and splendid garments that are certain to make the show more attractive. In addition, around 700,000 items of fireworks have been purchased with the support of many local Chinese friends. These will add much life to the spectacle on this special occasion. It seems certain that all participants will enjoy the show. Exhibitors and performers will all be in high spirits and the crowd of onlookers will enjoy themselves immensely. Proceeds from the show should also raise a substantial sum of money. Additionally, the Chinese Australian Herald office also stocked books useful to Chinese immigrants. Among these were, and I'm not making this up, Everything You Need to Know About Western Etiquette, and also a Chinese-English business handbook. However, then as in now, the main source of revenue for the newspaper was advertising. Crucially, these were European advertisers who wanted to tap into the Chinese market. Very few Chinese would actually advertise in the paper until much later on. To convince these European businesses to place their ads with him, Sun frequently had to purchase goods from them himself. This was to be a disastrous decision for him later in the career of the paper and his own personal life. For much of his early life, Sun Johnson was considered a thoroughly English Chinese man. Along with his friends and businessman Quang Tart and William Robert George Lee, he became a Freemason in the 1890s. The physician and politician Sir James Graham said that Sun was 
a good Christian, a good Britisher, and a good Chinaman. In January 1899, he married Frances Annie Buchan Cogger, who was just 17 at the time. Son was in his early 30s. The marriage was not a successful one. In 1908, Sun petitioned for the return of his conjugal rights after Frances left him. She claimed that he had beaten her, but he said he had in fact spoiled her. They were briefly reunited before finally divorcing in 1910. An interesting, if we can use that word, effect of the white Australia policy is that their son, who was born in Australia, had to apply for an exemption to the dictation test before he could leave on a trip to China. The boy was just three years old. His nationality was given as half-caste. Over the course of his life, Sun lived in several different homes in Sydney. One was Witch Hazel at Birrell Street in Waverley. It had been the home of the Vickery family, and you can see the house today on the grounds of the War Memorial Hospital. Before that, he had a luxuriously furnished residence at Lavender Bay, where he collected clocks, chronometers, musical instruments, and statues. He later lived on Manning Street in Waverley and at the Royal Chambers on the corner of Hunter and Castle Ray Streets in the heart of what is now the CBD. Following the death of Kwong Tart in 1903, who you heard about in the previous episode, one of the most prominent Chinese businessmen in Sydney, some thought of Sun Johnson as the most influential among the Chinese community in Sydney. That year, the World News published an article saying that Sun had a bright, amiable disposition, and is a general favourite among Europeans and Chinese alike. It also said that he was one of the best types of superior class of Chinamen that we have in Australia, which feels a bit like a backhanded compliment. But we do know that he was a keen supporter of charitable causes, which is how he had become involved in the Jubilee celebrations. One cause that he supported was the case of 23 Chinese men who had been refused to land in Australia under the Immigration Restriction Act, or the White Australia Policy, as it is more commonly known. The steamship they had arrived on took them on to German New Guinea, where the men thought they would transfer to another ship back to Hong Kong. Instead, they were detained there and sentenced to 12 months hard labour. At least three died. In the early 20th century, Sun's opinion was frequently sought on events happening in China or about the Chinese community. He gave lectures and addresses and was quoted in newspaper articles. On his return from a trip to Japan and China, Sydney's Evening News published a lengthy article with his comments about those two countries, with topics as diverse as railways, mining, education and opium. But all that changed dramatically after a series of disasters left him ruined. The newspapers were not so kind to him then. In 1923, when he was in his late 50s, Sun was declared bankrupt. He had racked up debts of £5,000 against assets valued at £435. Part of his demise stemmed from a sickness that he suffered from in 1921. He had been laid low for six months with a weak heart and a swollen leg. Certainly, the effects of war were also felt on all businesses. But the major reason was due to the advertising contracts he had with suppliers. It turned out that for most of more than its 20-year life, the Chinese-Australian Herald had not been self-supporting. Sun had had to find other ways of keeping it afloat, and his method was a little bit bizarre. To convince merchants and businesses to advertise with him, he would buy their merchandise. But then he had to on-sell it. To move the goods quickly, he would offer them at a reduced rate, effectively making a loss. He got into the habit of buying goods on credit and then selling for cash, 
usually with about 7.5 or 10% off. It was a loser's game, but his hand had been forced by the suppliers. He said, if we didn't buy goods from them, they wouldn't give us advertisements. Sun racked up the 5,000 in debts before being found and declared bankrupt. He said that his creditors had been worried about him for years and had often resorted to giving post-dated checks in payment for goods. By this time, he was also working as a herbalist, so a lot of the goods he was buying were patent medicines. It was evident that Sun had been using this system from the very first days of the paper. As early as 1912, he was involved in another case, this one much less nefarious. Sun had given advertising space to a clothes dyer and cleaner named John Harris. Essentially, he encouraged Harris to advertise in the Chinese Herald, and instead of payment, Sun would send his clothes to be cleaned. However, they eventually clashed over how much work had been done. Sun said Harris owed him £9.15 shillings for the ads, but only £2 or £3 of work had been done. When Harris tried to charge him 12 shillings for the cleaning of a few suits, Sun refused and brought the case against him. Harris claimed that he had done 15 pounds of work. His understanding was that he would do Sun's clothes, but Sun had sent him garments from his friends too. You were supposed to do enough work to cut it out, Sun said in court. The way you bullied me was unmerciful. Harris replied, I should think I did. When you wanted me to work for all Australia, you are the best dressed man in Sydney, you know, and promised to send me two suits a week. Now, how Sun managed to get away with this interesting business model for so long is quite amazing. Unfortunately, following his bankruptcy, Sun continued to trade illegally. He purchased a large amount of goods from W. Arnott Limited under the explicit agreement that the biscuits were for export to the Pacific Islands. However, Sun instead sold them to Merchants Limited for cash, again at a discount of 75 to 10.5%. The bankruptcy registrar, in handing down his verdict, said that Sun did not keep accurate books, continued to trade illegally following his bankruptcy, and continued to rack up debts he had no hope of repaying. He added that it was one of the worst cases of fraudulent trading that had come under his notice. The newspaper reports of this case are a shocking read. Back in 1903, the Pakers had glowingly praised Sun's intelligence and public speaking, but in 1925, the tone was very different. Truth newspaper wrote, spelling out words phonetically to make fun of a Chinese accent. And they wrote, me all li, me get em dis large, me no more bankrupt, me welly all an honest man, me journalist of high degree, me also slewed businessman and herbalist, me no quack, but welly clever Chinaman, with luck as hard as gallstones, I take from patience, poor patience, yes, poor or li, me poor too. Yep. That was from the Truth newspaper. So the fate of his Chinese paper was in decline too. What with the white Australia policy, a dwindling Chinese population in Australia, conflict in China, and the birth of a new generation of Chinese who spoke English, there was less need for dedicated Chinese papers. During the 1920s, there had been six Chinese newspapers distributing 15,000 copies across Australia. The Chinese Australian Herald ended in 1923, the year before Sun was found bankrupt. The Tanghua Times ceased in 1936. There were no significant Chinese newspapers again until the 1980s. 
Son Johnson died in October of 1925 in Darlinghurst. Depending on which document you refer to, he was somewhere between 60 and 66 years old. His death was noted with two simple lines in the family notices section of the Sydney Morning Herald. There was no mention that this man had once been a respected journalist and intellect, that his opinion had been sought on important matters, that he had travelled extensively, that he had been a pioneer. There was no mention that he had been the editor of the first Australian Chinese newspaper. Despite his unfortunate financial practices, Sun Johnson had worked hard to help integrate new Chinese into European culture. The Chinese-Australian Herald was an important part of early Sydney's history and development, and without it, the lives of many Chinese would have been the lesser. His contribution to the community at large was significant. With his later activities, some say he was no shining star. Well, he was Sun Johnson. Thanks for listening to this episode of New Stories, Bold Legends. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find out more about me at ValerieKoo.com. That's K-H-O-O. You can find out more about Sun Johnson and others who celebrate Lunar New Year from this generation and from yesteryear over at newstories.net.au. You'll also find pictures of some of the people we've mentioned so they can come to life visually for you. In the meantime, we hope to see you at the Sydney Lunar Festival. Through this podcast this season, you've been meeting a range of historical characters, the forefathers and mothers of the Sydney Lunar Festival, which is a modern day celebration of culture, heritage and diversity. It's through the contribution of these people from history who have created the unique culture we celebrate today in Australia. At the festival, you'll find iconic art installations in the form of huge lunar lanterns, each representing a different animal of the zodiac lining circular key. Performances, talks and events throughout the city of Sydney. More than 1.5 million people attend the festival, which has become one of the biggest events on the city's calendar and the biggest celebration of Lunar New Year outside of mainland China. To find out more, go to sydneylunarfestival.com. See you at the festival.